Now, on this third session, I wanted to come and just deal with that very interesting question that was raised, which I overlooked. And to help you, you might like to turn back for a moment to page 5. And it says there, under 2, that Elisha learns a lot from Elijah, but sees his, he sees he needs a greater anointing so as to succeed where Elijah failed. He asks for a double portion of the Elijah spirit and gets it. It's a hard but not impossible thing. Now come with me to Second Kings in chapter 2, where we're just going to look that up for a moment. Because this is a very, very important principle that I slipped over. Second Kings chapter 2. And here is Elijah, knowing that he's soon going to be taken. He goes to four different stops, and at each one he says to Elisha, you stay here, I'm going on. And Elisha says, not on your life. If you're going there, I'm going there. And, and, and each time he says, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So finally they cross over Jordan miraculously, and the 50 prophets are keeping a safe distance to just watch what happens to these couple of nutcases. And you'll find that you're like that. If you really go for this, there's going to be a lot of people that say, right, well, let's see what happens to them before we get into this. And I can promise you, until we see the breakthrough, it will not become a mass movement. And so you're going to be a, a bit of a lonely pioneer. And you're going to want to get hold of the parcels of your city and shake them till their teeth rattle because they can't see what you can see. Well, that's, that's, well that's, I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just suggesting that momentarily you might feel that way and then you get on your knees and pray for them instead. Knowing that this is something which is a fire in your spirit that God's given you and, and we are being given the responsibility to pioneer something through. So Elijah and Elisha cross over and Elijah then says to him, what can I do for you? Verse 9, before I'm taken. And Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And Elisha's come to a certain conclusion and this is the conclusion. He's watched Elijah, and I'm quite sure as they travelled together and came to a, a pretty high level of intimacy, I'm sure there came a point sometime, probably after an evening meal, when at last Elijah felt free to tell Elisha one of the most shameful moments in his ministry, the day that he ran away, ran away from Jezebel and went and hid in the desert. He said, I don't know what came over me. It was like a dark cloud came upon me. There I was one minute... You know, on Mount Carmel and all the prophets of Baal were being slain and I prayed and the rain supernaturally came down and I ran with supernatural strength back to Samaria and, and I was on a roll and suddenly, bam! I went right down the tube and ran away like a scared chicken and I'm totally ashamed of myself. I don't know what happened to me. can't explain it. And ever since then, I've never felt the same fire, I've never felt the same anointing, I've never felt faith like I used to feel. Um, I, something was irretrievably damaged in me. Now I could mention names to you in this meeting of people in this country that I know that's happened to. Men that I walked with 40 years ago that, that would say that to me privately. Alan, the fire's gone out of me. I'm, all I'm looking for now is, is retirement. And it nearly happened to me, so I know what it feels like. But what, what I believe happened was this, that as Elisha listened to that, he thought, well, if I'm going to succeed where Elijah failed, I'm going to need something more than Elijah had. Although I, I'd love what he had, I admire what he had, and I've learned so much from what he had, and this man has imparted so much to me. I've got to go beyond where he is, otherwise I'm going to end up the same way. And I want to suggest to you that, for example, the Pentecostal movement at the turn of, this cent of, of the last century is a, is a picture of that sort of thing. And the great men that came out of it, the great healing revivals that came out of the 40s and some of the great men that were with that, the incredible Jesus movement in the 60s and some of the great men that came out of that, and, and some of them are still around. Many of them have gone to be with the Lord, but, but if, you, if you listen to them and walk with them, um, and then see what has happened to so many of them. 
you're forced to this conclusion, and we have to agree that all through the um, 20th century, in spite of all these great moves of God in the United States of America, that socially, morally, spiritually, we've gone terribly downhill. Our cities are ten, a hundred times more wicked today than they were before the Pentecostal revival. So whatever it's done for the church, it's not done anything significantly for society. Would you agree with that? So we've got to have something more than these great men had. Amen? Yeah. We need an anointing. We need to be able to heal like they did, but we need much more than that besides. So Elisha, not out of any kind of arrogance or bravado, but out of dire necessity, he said, I need a double portion of your spirit. Whatever you had, I need it in double measure. And Elijah's response is, you've asked a hard thing. Not an impossible thing, a hard thing. And I wonder as you sit here in this meeting whether you are prepared to let the kind of discipline that's necessary come upon your life so that the kingdom consumes you rather than many other perfectly valid things which you can do legitimately without it being sin but you say, look, I just can't do those things because I'm, I'm focused on this one thing. And I wonder... Uh, how many of you will be prepared to pay that price? People say to me, say, well, what, what do you do for recreation? And I have to say, well, I don't have time for it. You know, and you say, well, that, that's, that's bad for you, brother. Well, actually, I keep remarkably physically fit, but I believe I keep remarkably physically fit, not by an exercise program, but by the power of God's grace. I, I live and work at a level that makes most people feel tired just reading what I do but it is not a burden to me. Believe me, I'm not lying to you when I tell you this. And I learned this several years ago when, it, when Paul said in the, in the Colossian letter, he said, he, said, he said, my passion is to present every man perfect in Christ. And this I do, laboring night and day according to the energy which he mightily supplies within me. And I found a, a place several years ago when I learned as part of God's grace to access a physical energy, because I've, I've, got a, I've got a passion, I've got a focus. I was brought to America by God in the most amazing way to be part of a team that he's going to use to bring revival to this nation. And that's, I, that's what I'm here for, that's what consumes me. You've asked a hard thing, but it's not an impossible thing. I didn't watch one minute of Super Bowl. God forgive me. Well, God's forgiven me, I'm not quite sure if anybody else will. <laughs> Amen. Who would dare have an evening meeting on Super Bowl Sunday? Maybe one day we will even have something like that happen. I'm not against these things; they're okay on the side, but they're not—they're not the passion of my life. So, are you prepared for the hard thing? Are you prepared for God to take your life and say that even legitimate things are, have got to be put on one side for the sake of the kingdom? Well, I'm prepared to pay that price and God can hear me while I say it and I mean it. Amen? Now, Elijah's, Elijah's response was two things. He said, you've asked a hard thing. Then he said one more thing. He said, if you see me when I'm taken from you, this is verse 10, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so, but if not, it shall not be so. And then as Elisha ascended up into heaven, it says in verse 12, Elisha saw it. So he did see it. Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horses of Israel. And from that moment, he walked with a consciousness of the power of, and glory of the forces of God that were with him. It's great and a very necessary part of the kingdom to have human relationships, covenant relationships. But I tell you, it's even more important to know that the angelic hosts are with you. Yeah. So when you go to take a city, you're not just you and a few other Christians, but there's an army of the Lord there that's very aware of the battle and very much involved in the battle. This happened to me in the city of Bombay uh, shortly after I was baptized in the Spirit, I never saw anything. I didn't have any vision. But, but as we're going to look at in a couple of days' time, 
the first prayer of the Apostle Paul is focused right on this issue and I'll show you that in a couple of days time because this is all building up to that end there's no way that we're going to take cities with people who can't see anything or with leaders who can't see later on as you know when uh, uh, Elisha is using this incredible word of knowledge ministry to tell the king of Israel what the king of Syria is even thinking in his bedroom Says, who's, who's, the, you know, who's the spy here? And they say, no, it's not a spy, it's Elisha. He tells the king of Israel what you're thinking in your bedroom. He says, I'm, I'm going to go get him. So he sends a whole army to Dothan to get him. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, you read how uh, the servant of Elisha wakes up without this seeing vision. And when he looks around, he sees the vast forces arrayed against him. And he says, oh, alas! That's verse 15. But Elisha, looking at the same scene exactly, in verse 16 says this, he said, don't be afraid, for those that are with us are far more than those that be with them. Now that wasn't brave talk, he could actually see it. It's one thing to speak bravado in a prayer meeting, it's another thing to see these things with such clarity, you know it's absolute reality. And that happened to me in the city of Bombay. So I knew that the forces of God that were with us in our little company that broke that under God broke that thing open it was that heavenly vision which gave us the power and the authority to go and see a breakthrough does that make sense to you? and you'll find all the way through the life of Elisha he's seeing even when he's on his deathbed and here's a very interesting thing in 2 Kings chapter 13 when Elisha's on his deathbed he's looking for someone that he can pass on the fire and the passion to and he gets Joash the king now here's something you need to listen to because Joash the king greatly respected Elisha if you like he'd learned the language of the kingdom but didn't have the burning faith or passion in his heart so Elisha comes to I'm sorry Joash the king comes to Elisha because Elisha's dying and he knows how to say the right things he says oh the horses and the chariots of Israel but he couldn't see them he only knew theologically they were there and that was the right if you like, political thing today to do when you're in the company of Elisha because that's what he was always talking about. So it's possible as a church to bring people to the language of the kingdom without seeing the kingdom. To get them, you know, making the right noises in your prayer meetings but they're not militantly, militantly on fire in between the prayer meetings. And when you try and, as you come towards the end of your ministry, and you try and lay your hands on some of these young men and say, right now, the anointing is coming upon you. There's a window of opportunity. Now shoot the arrow, the arrow of destruction. And then you say, pick up those arrows and bang them on the ground. And of course, what it was saying, it, it was, I, I, Elisha was on a flame with, with a passionate desire to pass on to the next generation in even greater measure what he'd received but he couldn't find the right instrument for it. That's the tragedy. So this guy sort of fitfully bangs the ground a couple of times. And he says, well, if you'd done it five or six times, you would have utterly destroyed Syria. Now you're just going to have a few victories, it's all going to be over. Because I guess when Elisha died, they probably said, well, we're having too many prayer meetings, let's cut them down, and you know, let's not have them for such a long time. And, and before long, it, what he'd put in by his fire began to die out because the fire was not generated, not transmitted into the next generation. Can you hear what I'm saying? Now Jesus came as the great Elisha. He was the, if you like, the kingdom fulfilment of all that. By the way, if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find that recorded against the name of Elijah are seven miracles, including one person being raised from the dead. If you go and trace through the name of Elisha, you will find 14 miracles two being raised from the dead, one after he died. I mean, his bones were still on fire. And when they chucked that corpse into the tomb, the guy leaps out of the tomb, resurrected by the fire that was still on Elisha's bones. Hallelujah. That's the way I want to live. That's the way I want to die in Jesus' name. I don't want to die on old people's hands. I want to die in battle. I want, to, I want the fire to be the same, in fact, even greater at the end than it was at the beginning. And I'm looking... I'm looking for young men to lay my hands on and say, now shoot those arrows, shoot those arrows, and bang them on the ground until you know that God's given you the victory. Amen? So, 
as we go from John the Baptist to Jesus, we're, we're, we've got the same transmission. Does that, does that help make sense? I'm, thank you for saying it, because I left that bit out. Now let's go back to look at the list of John the Baptist. Um, come back to verse, um, to page 7. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. As I've already mentioned, we're going to spend a whole session, at, uh, certainly one whole session, possibly more, on John's first letter and how important it is for believers to actually know and manifest the very eternal life of God. And until we do, we cannot be that light. But when we do, we, we will be that light. That was something that John the Baptist never ever experienced. He couldn't experience it because he was the wrong side of the line. But everybody in the kingdom is called to live that way. Amen? So let's go on to the next one. Number four, which is John, this is on page seven, John the Baptist did not live by faith or do works of faith. In fact, as I trace through all the scriptures, I don't find the word faith once coming out of the mouth of John the Baptist, but I do find the word repent coming many, many times. With Jesus, it's repent and believe. With John, it's repent. And once again, I want to suggest to you that a lot of the evangelical world teaches repentance, but doesn't more than nominally teach faith. I mean, if you go to a Bible school, if you go to a theological seminary, there isn't a course on faith that you have to pass. Apart from a theological understanding of it. But you're not required to do works of faith. And yet in the early church, they wouldn't even let you wait at table. Unless you were full of faith, full of wisdom, and full of the Holy Ghost. Amen? But you can pass out of seminary with a doctorate, and yet you, you haven't got the faith to cure a car. Or believe God for uh, a financial need. Because that's not part of the training. There are some Bible schools, like Reese House Bible School in South Wales, which uh, had that ministry. And, and, but generally speaking, I'm speaking the truth. Amen? But if you're going to come into the kingdom, you've got to come into faith. Without faith it is impossible to please God. And those that it says in um, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, for example, the righteous, quoting Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous must live by his faith. And because it's by faith you access grace, and it's by grace that God supplies everything that you need. Now, in the set of tapes you've got, there is one tape on faith. There, there, are, much, there are several sets of tapes. If you really want me to tell you all I know about faith, it's on different sets of tapes. It's, it's part of my life, it's part of my passion. And I've got many, many years of experience to prove that it works. But uh, that is another mark, that, that in the kingdom, you, Jesus and all kingdom Christians live by faith. It says in Acts 10.38, it says, Peter says, you remember how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost? I'm sorry, I've jumped here. Um, um, I, 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 the next one I was going to say was that John was not baptized or anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' life was a life of faith and he taught his disciples that they had to live by faith. Every time they failed any, for any reason, they said, Lord, why couldn't we do that? What was his answer every time? Because you, of your unbelief. There's no ever any other reason given for failure except unbelief. When they couldn't move the mountain, he said, because you've got, you, haven't got, you haven't got faith. And he tells us in Matthew 17, that faith goes out by prayer and fasting. That's what he's saying. Not the demon. I believe it's the faith. If you live a life of disciplined prayer and fasting, you'll find that one of the dimensions of that is that you get into ever-increasing faith. If you pray in tongues a lot, you'll find that somehow the constant imbibing of the Spirit, it does what it says in Scripture, which is it builds an ever-increasing... Because the word... He who prays in an unknown tongue edifies himself. The word is the word hoikodomia, which means to build a house, literally. So when you pray in an unknown tongue, you build a house for God's Spirit to increasingly live inside you. 
I don't know, I mean, I've spoken in tongues now for 37, 38 years. It still doesn't make any sense to me. It's a, I'm as clueless about what's going on as I, the day I started. But I've got the fruit of it in my life. And I, I, I think more today than in the beginning, I realize what an amazing gift this is. If I constantly pray in tongues, or frequently pray in tongues, it, it constantly increases my capacity for God to live in me, my spirit's enlarged to become a larger and larger residence for God the Spirit. And as a result, God is more resident in me, and as a result, God can more powerfully flow through. But that's a total faith issue. Which leads me on to the next one, which I jumped onto accidentally, which is Jesus was not baptized or anointed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, John was not, I'm sorry. Jesus, John was not baptized or anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus and all kingdom Christians are. Now let me go back to that quote I was just beginning to quote to you. Acts 10, 38. Peter says, You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. Now that's how he summarizes his ministry. He was anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. The purpose was to go about do, doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. And then it says in John chapter 12, John chapter 14 verse 12, Jesus said, now the works that I do, you better not try and do them because I'm God. Amen. We need to, we need to maintain a respectful differential between me and you. That's what we said. No, he said, the works that I do, you're going to do. And he gives two reasons. I'm going to the Father and it's for everybody that believes. It's the Holy Spirit that gives the power, but it's the faith which allows that power to come and to be manifested. The two work together. The anointing of the Spirit and the power of faith. He said, now you're going to go out and you're going to do the very works that I do. In fact, he said, you're going to do greater than I've done. And that's said to anyone. Amen? Because that's the kingdom. So kingdom Christians are anointed with the Holy Spirit just like Jesus and they do go out and they do the works of Jesus. Verse number 6 John was not functionally in the kingdom. He could powerfully preach about it but he could not forcefully advance it. I think we've said enough on that. I'm not going to repeat myself there. Amen? Jesus began the kingdom and he began to forcefully advance it. But all kingdom Christians do the same thing. Does that all make sense to you? Amen? Now let me repeat again according to Matthew 12 and according to Luke 11. You might like to turn to Matthew 12 which is in that very powerful passage on the kingdom and they're challenging Jesus and he says in verse 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says an almost identical thing in the Luke version, Luke uh, chapter 11, and uh, is it verse, is it 20 or 21, isn't it? Luke 11. Let's have a look. 20. If I cast out demons, with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in Matthew, it's the Spirit of God. In Luke, it's the finger of God. Let me just say one little thing about this finger of God. It's the only place in Scripture, no, let me rephrase that. There are, there are only two places in Scripture where this phrase, the, kingdom of, the, the finger of God, is used. One of them is here. The other one is in Exodus 8.18 when Moses is locked in conflict with the great demonic powers that are working through uh, Pharaoh, the, the, the ruler of Egypt, and he's not going to let God's people go. Moses is sent by God to confront that spirit. Well, I suspect without being able to really prove it, well, I think I can pretty well prove it, that that spirit was none other than Isis, the great great Egyptian supreme deity that ruled over the Egyptian Empire and was worshipped and, and sought after even right up through to the Roman Empire. It was a powerful, there was lots of worship of Isis going on even through to the, to the 
early days of, well, in even the late days of the Roman Empire. It was a powerful deity. And there was an Isis who was a, who was a, a goddess. There was um, Osiris who was her husband who got killed by another god. But Isis finds the power to raise him from the dead. So he becomes a sort of dependent upon her superior power. Then they have a son called Horus. So you've got a sort of perverted holy trinity there. And, and Isis is often seen holding baby Horus in her arms, but she's the power. She's the great authority. And that was the spirit that, that, that came against uh, Moses and was working through these great and powerful magicians. And they, they, he does a miracle, they do a miracle. He does a miracle, they do a miracle. He does a miracle, they do a miracle. And then you come to another miracle, and he does this miracle, and they can't repeat it. And they have this strange feeling, they have this weird feeling, which comes in several places in Scripture, where they suddenly feel that the demonic power which they're relying on has been a power outage. <laughs> and they're just hanging on the end with nothing, and, and boy, are they scared. And, that, and then they say, they, they say this, they say, This is the finger of God! And what I believe this means is that what Jesus was able to do was not only to work miracles, but he was able to fuse the power of hell so that there was a power outage. And I believe God's going to bring us to a place where when witches and wizards and these occult groups start to try and do their wicked works, they're going to find to their amazement that they're absolutely powerless because this will be the thing of God. When the kingdom of God comes, then we're able to move with that finger of God power. Does that make sense to you? We had an event uh, uh, quite a few years ago now in the area where we lived in England. It's three towns, Watford, Hemel Hempstead and, and uh, St Albans. Three quite large towns. And we, this was our sphere of authority. This was our sphere of responsibility. And we'd seen some great and wonderful things happen. We'd seen all kinds of demonic things shut down. We were really seeing the kingdom come. Then one weekend we saw an advertisement advertising in the large um, uh, conference hall in Hemel Hempstead. It was advertising a weekend of fascination, it was called. And they were explaining that every kind of witchcraft, every kind of witch, fortune teller, tarot card reader, every kind of occult worker of witchcraft, and there were going to be all kinds of sessions to teach you how to move in these things, all kinds of fantastic demonstrations, and you could come and have this wonderful, fascinating weekend, you know, in this wonderful realm of the mystic realm of the spirit. And it was sold with such tremendous, convincing power. And when we saw that, I was hopping mad. And I could see what terrible damage it could do. And I could see it was a direct satanic attack against us as we were We'd planted, I think, now five churches in that region, and we were seeing the advance of the kingdom. So I called the churches together, and I said, look, this is what I believe we should do. I believe we should... Um, I want 300 people we'll, who are not at all afraid. And I want you to come with me, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to this... this we're not going to stand outside and demonstrate. We're not just going to lobby a politician. We're, we're going to go there. We're going to pay our entrance money. We're going to go inside, we're going to walk up and down this conference centre, praying in the name of Jesus, binding every spirit, and we're going to pull the fuses on every bit of demonic power so they, so they can't do a darn thing. That's what I said we would do. We're, going to just, we're just going to invade that place with the authority and power of the kingdom. And everybody was ready to go, and we had our army of 300. And I think it was about three or four days before that weekend that the organisers cancelled the whole thing. Because they learned what we were going to do, and they did not dare face us in confrontation. Hallelujah. They pulled out. They pulled out. And we've got to come to the place where we're not just mopping up after the devil is hitting us. We've, we've, we've taken the fuses out so he can't do anything. Amen? Now that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. Right, let's move on. Here's the final thing. John did not live or pray, this is number seven, as a son of God. Now, there are some tapes, I think we've got a tape there for you to listen to. If you don't understand what 
biblically the Greek word son means. That tape explains it and I have not time to do it now. But it's just sufficient to say that there are many, 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 many uh, words in scripture which describe the parent-child relationship. This particular one is the huios, the son of God. And this describes someone who is a grown-up adult son who's come to the age of 30 according to biblical culture and has now come into his father's inheritance and can now access that father's inheritance and use it. Now that's basically what a son is. You ever listen to the tape to get the full story? Well, as you come to the upper room at the end of Jesus' ministry and you get the full version in John's Gospel 13 through 17 and again we're going to be looking at that um, towards the end of this week to see the things that John said which were so powerful and important. But in this, Jesus is teaching two great things which, which are the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure you would agree that if you were about to go and be executed tomorrow morning for your faith, you would be concerned to leave with your disciples the most important things. Would you agree? With you wouldn't say, well, don't forget to water the plants and remember to... Uh, put the cat out you would be you'd say no it's your last chance so Jesus in that period he's teaching more than a hundred times he speaks about the Holy Spirit more than sixty times he speaks about the Father and he says one of the, one of, and he talks about the day the Holy Spirit comes as being that day this great day the day that the Spirit comes becomes that day if you, if, with those as a background, if you could come with me to John chapter 16. I just want to, I, I can do no more than touch on this. Come to John chapter 16. And he says this to them. He says, um, verse 23, In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here's verse 25. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you, or more accurately, I will show you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me. He's teaching a very, very important principle here. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, teach us how to pray as John taught his disciples. The response of Jesus is to, is to speak out for the second time what we have come to call the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, say, Our Father. Now that's an incredible revelation to a Jew. For a Jew to call God his Father would be Impossible. How could I do that? That's, that's so almost like blasphemy. So he wasn't going to teach them to pray like John the Baptist. He was going to teach them to pray like sons pray, because sons pray for their fathers. And one of the great reasons the Holy Spirit's come, according to Galatians 4 and according to Romans 8, is he, he might come into our hearts and do what? He might cry out, Daddy, Father. Now many, many Christians have obviously had a, an experience of Jesus as their Saviour. They have a, an experience of Holy Spirit as the baptizer, but most Christians, or, or let's say many Christians, have never had a revelation of the Father. They just believe in the Trinity. But it's a totally different thing for the Holy Spirit to come and show you the Father, and for your spirit to cry out with that wonderful sense of adoption, Oh, Daddy! Father! And then you know from that day, by the sheer amazing grace of God that you are as much God's son by grace as Jesus is God's son by nature. Now I know the day that happened to me. It was in 1965 in Bombay. Now there's been an ever-increasing enriching understanding of that but that's when the transition took place. If nothing else happens to you this week but you get that revelation I tell you it would have been well worth it just to get that revelation. To walk around knowing the Father to walk around as, as, as the son of the father in absolute revealed truth is one of the most powerful and wonderful things that can happen to you it changes your life in so many ways 
But all I'm going to do this afternoon is to just emphasize that one of the effects it has is it changes your prayer life. Because you learn to pray as a son and not as a beggar. This is a true story. This happened, I think it was in, well, I'm pretty sure it was. must have been in 1966. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but it's worth repeating. I was in England, back from India in 1966, and a friend of mine was responsible for a large Christian charity that was doing a lot of work in, you know, developing countries, and it was a, it was a compassion ministry, drilling wells, you know, teaching agriculture, it was that sort of ministry. And he obviously needed as much money as he could get to do as much as he could to meet the tremendous need in so many of these countries. And he got the opportunity to go to the Duke of Edinburgh, who is the husband of Queen Elizabeth of England. He's not the king, but he's an incredibly influential person. And he will accept, um, he will become, um, what's the word I want, a patron of a charity, you know, if he thinks it's a good cause. And if he becomes the patron of the charity, then you have access to all kinds of trust funds. So for him to get the Duke's patronage was going to be very important for the financial flow to that fund. So he got this 15-minute interview to go up to Buckingham Palace to meet the Duke of Edinburgh and to present to him the needs of his charity. Well, the great day came, he put on his best suit, travelled down to London by train, got to Buckingham Palace, showed all the different permits and passes. He got right into the private waiting room of the Duke himself. At four o'clock precisely, he'd got 15 minutes with this great man. At precisely four o'clock, the door opened and the private secretary showed him into his presence. And he said, I, I'd written down very carefully what I was going to say because I wasn't going to waste a minute at this time. He said, I sat on the chair and I was uh, just ready to start speaking when, when the door flew open and in ran one of, it was, I think it was Prince Edward, the youngest of the princes. He was only just a little boy in those days. He came and he said, Dad, my toy's broken. And the Duke said, excuse me, and he, he said, I must, I must attend to my son. He said, it took him nine minutes to fix the toy. And then he got the toy working, sent the son off with the toy. He said, go on, you run off, son, I need to talk to this gentleman. Then he turned back to my friend and said, I'm very sorry, but I have another appointment at 4.15. So you'll have to say all you have to say in six minutes. And my friend said this to me. I've never forgotten what he said. He said, in that moment, I learned there's all the difference in the world between being a petitioner and being a son. See, the son had rights. The son didn't have an appointment. He had rights. He had a relationship. He was a petitioner. When Jesus stood outside the tomb of Lazarus, it tells us this in John chapter 11, he said he cried out with a loud voice, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. Sorry about that. <laughs> and, and, and it says in Scripture that he, he did that not for his own sake, but for those around him so they could hear him because he wanted them to know why he always got his prayers answered. Father, I thank you that you always hear me because I'm your son. So I want them to know why I never have any doubt about my prayers getting answered because I don't pray as a petitioner, I pray as a son. I'm not going to teach you to pray as a petitioner, I'm going to teach you to pray as a son. And when the Spirit comes, he's going to reveal the Father to you and you're going to cry out with that same adoring Daddy-Father spirit and you're going to have the same access to the Father and Jesus said, I'm not even going to pray the Father for you, I don't need to. You can go and ask him for yourself. And you will have as much claim on him and you'll have the same rights of sonship that I have. And you can say with the same confidence, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. And he will answer. That's why Jesus with total confidence said, Lazarus, come forth. Because sons get their prayers answered. Petitioners may be fortunate. But sons, it's a different basis altogether. Amen? And so John the Baptist never prayed as a son because he didn't, he didn't have that relationship. But Jesus did and all kingdom Christians who've come to understand 
what they've been brought into and oh how Jesus was so desperate that these disciples would get this revelation because it was going to affect their whole prayer life and what they were able to pray for as a son was definitely going to come to pass it was going to change everything and that day when I saw that and heard that I learned to pray as a son and not as a petitioner when I first went out to India as a as a faith missionary and I was just trusting God for my finances and I wasn't writing begging letters or trying to raise support I, but I did pray hard and I was always praying oh God send what we need I've got by this time two children and, and many responsibilities and, I, and, I was, and the Lord said to me one day as, as Eileen was ironing one of my son's shirts and, and the shirt was frayed it needed to be replaced she said look Duncan needs a new shirt I said fine get him one and then God spoke to me and said what kind of father do you think I am? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, look, here's your son Duncan. He doesn't even know he needs a new shirt. He doesn't have to come to you every morning and say, oh, father, I need a new shirt. Please give me a new shirt. He said, you've already arranged to change it because you are a loving father. How much more am I going to supply your need before you ask me? So he said to me, I don't ever want to hear you pray again. Oh God, send my need. Just thank me. Though I will always supply you. And from that day, which was way back in the 60s to this day, I've never prayed a prayer asking God for things that I need. I've just thanked him that he will supply my need. Because I'm a son. And sons have their needs met. Now if you look at that, that little list there, you'll find four things I put there. A son has a relationship with the father. A son has rights in prayer and a son, of course, has all the riches of his father available to him. Amen? When the prodigal son ran away from home and the elder brother got upset when he came back and the father came out to the elder son and he said to him, he said, you've never even, made, gave, you've never even given me a kid to make merry with my friends. And the, el the father says to the son, he says, Son, all that I have is yours. The trouble is you never asked me for anything. It wasn't lack of supply, it was lack of, of believing, expectant answering, asking. Amen? So kingdom Christians pray like sons. They don't pray like petitioners. Is that okay? Amen. Now we're going to go on to the uh, next page. We're going to just have a quick look at the assault on Ephesus. We've sort of filled in the background. Now we're going to start to look at how the assault on Ephesus began. And uh, you, I don't know if you've got them in your notes, but you will get them in your notes. You'll get a brief description of the city of Ephesus. I put a little bit on this page. Ephesus was, was the major city of Asia Minor. Asia Minor, of course, um, is uh, an area that is roughly represented by Turkey. Ephesus was one of the seven churches which are referred to in the book of Revelation. And it was the major city. Um, it, was a, had a, it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. had a population of 250,000, which was it was a colossal size in those days. But it was most famous as the seat of Artemis, which was the great deity of the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great did a great deal to uh, build this great temple, which was this, one of the seven wonders of the world, and all over the Greek Empire, Artemis was prayed to, glorified, and honoured. But when the Romans came to power and came into the city of Ephesus, they recognised Artemis as their own goddess Diana. They were just identical, just different names for the same spirit. And if you did take the trouble, which I have done, and trace this back, you'll find that the, the properties and qualities, even the images and pictures of either Artemis or, uh, either Artemis or Diana, which are certainly almost identical, they're very, very similar to the Isis of the Egyptians. 
called Baal. And as I've already said, it was Baal, I believe, that was working through Jezebel. It ruled the Egyptian empire as Isis. It ruled the Greek empire as Artemis. And in my opinion, it had already ruled the Babylonian, the Syrian and the Persian empires as Baal. Now, it's ruling the Roman empire as Diana. It's the same spirit, power all the time with different names. All the emperors, the generals, the major political leaders and the businessmen bow down to this spirit with its various names and sought its aid and its blessing. Because this, this God or this spirit will, will give you favours, but of course there's always a price to pay. So, when you see, it ruled the whole um, realm of the Roman Empire. And, and if you go through all this stuff and look at pictures, you'll see there's many similarities. And, and Isis, Artemis and Diana all have similar titles. Here's some of them. They're all called the Queen of Heaven. They're all called the Moon Goddess. They're all called the Goddess of Nature in the Animal Kingdom. A lot of what, what today is nothing more than New Age is really all there in this worship. The same stuff and the same worship of nature and the same worship of the Animal Kingdom. And it's also a fertility goddess so there's certain absolutely obscene sexual rituals and festivals that go on. These idols and images have many similarities. And uh, I've got at the bottom of page 8 an ancient Egyptian image of Isis and Horus compared to a modern black Madonna in recent archaeological finds. Well, I'm going to mention that now because this was sent to me by someone who um, is, a, is, a, is in the, elect the electronic industry and he flipped a particular electronic magazine. And I talked in this particular place on the connection and the relationship of these spirits and I was really trying to show Americans that that's what we're dealing with here. I'll go on to all that in a moment. But I want you to see that's what we're dealing with. It wasn't just some pipsqueak demon and that's why to taking Ephesus meant it needs to be an informed army, not some you know, John Wayne or James Bond going as a charismatic hero and to die in the attempt. There's got to be a little more strategy about it if we're going to win the war. Amen? And so this guy sent me an article. In fact, I've got it at home and, and I could, if you're interested, I could photocopy it and give you a copy. But in this article, it's an electronic magazine, it's nothing, and, and they were reporting on a new form of ultrasonic equipment that had been developed which was far, far more sensitive and could reach to much greater depths than former ultrasonic equipment. And this equipment had been re used recently in the ancient port of Alexandria. And Alexandria, as you know, was the major city of the Egyptian Empire and it was from Alexandria where ships went out to trade across the whole Egyptian Empire. It was still a very powerful great centre even during the days of the Roman Empire. It was the third largest city of importance in the whole Roman Empire. You have Rome and then you have, no I think it was the second largest. I think it was the second largest. It was Rome, it was Alexandria, then it was Antioch and then it was Ephesus in that order. So it was the, it was the second most important centre of commerce and of trade and of, and of, and of government in the whole Roman Empire. And somewhere in uh, the... And Artemis was worshipped and so was Diana, but so was Isis. Isis was the favourite goddess of many, many Romans and many, many Greek people. And there was an a, a incredible large earthquake in that region. In, I think it was about the eighth, 7th or 8th century, or maybe it was earlier than that. And during that earthquake, the whole harbour of Alexandria was reshaped by that, by that earthquake and many ships went down and they were known that some of them were treasure ships but they went down in that earthquake and were never been found, never been uh, explored but this new ultrasonic equipment located some of these ships and they were able to go down there and start hauling up the treasure and some of the first things they hauled to the surface and this was just two or three years ago were some uh, statues of Isis in black marble holding baby Horus in her arms and in this 
the electronic magazine, it's got a picture of one of these items they pulled up from the seabed just two or three years ago, and they put it right beside a black Madonna that's worshipped all over Central America, and you cannot tell one from the other. And these secular archaeologists say it's very obvious to us that they are one and the same thing. And that's where, that's where they said the worship of Mary came from. It came from the worship of Isis, the sun goddess, and her baby son Horus. Now the Roman Catholic Church was absolutely furious with this. It's up in arms, denying it, but it, I tell you, it's, it's irres irresistibly convincing. And so it's, it's sort of like it, it, it's ruled over the centre of um, the military, political and economic power for centuries and centuries. Now, that is what was waiting for Paul when he was going to go to Ephesus. So I think you begin to see why there was necessary preparation. And I think you can begin to see why God took him through certain preparatory training steps before he allowed him to hit that. But I think you can also see why, when that thing was really hit and came down, it released the whole of Europe and most of North Africa to a powerful, <coughs> a powerful advance of the Kingdom of God. Now two things are very easily proved. One is that Freemasonry has its roots directly from the worship of Isis. Its symbols, the signs are the same. So Freemasonry, which is one of the biggest strongholds in the United States, which holds pretty well every Texan city in its power and holds Washington in its power. I think only three presidents have ever been non-Masons. I don't know where the President George Bush is, by the way. If anybody knows, please tell me. I know his dad paid some measure of lip service to him. So these are some of the things that we will be dealing with and we can learn from the Battle of Ephesus how we deal with these things in our day. It's also very easy to trace the beginnings of Islam to this same source. Diana, Artemis and Isis all had a certain very, very fine crescent-shaped necklace which she hung round her neck and that's identical to the one you see on the Muslim flags today. Anyway, I believe I've got to come to a halt now and we can move on again, so let's just have a break. Any questions on where we are so far?